Well, good morning. Hope, Mosaic. We'll go with both of them. Um, it's truly an honor to be here uh, once again for this calling all peacemaker service that you all put on each year. I had the privilege of being here last year, and uh, when I was asked to come again this year, it really wasn't even a question for me, as the work of peacemaking is something that sits at the center of my heart and my vocation. And I'm hard-pressed to find the words that adequately express the impact that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has had on my own faith and ministry, which is why I consider it a great honor to bring this word to you on this first MLK Sunday of a new decade. You know, Martin King is one of the giants of the faith on whose shoulders we all stand. But using this day to recognize and learn from his legacy is not an attempt to elevate him above the place that any human being should occupy, but it's always appropriate and prudent for us to, to learn from those who before us have courageously and faithfully followed the way of Jesus and who have shown us what it looks like to walk this narrow road in the context of American empire. One thing that Dr. King's legacy does is it causes us to step back and to look at the life of faith not just as our own private enterprise, but as a publicly prophetic witness. King famously believed that one of the roles that the church is to play in society is to be what he called the conscience of the state, reminding the state that it is to use the power that it has to govern with justice and with equity. Tomorrow, Dr. King will be honored as a national hero. Let me fix this. But let's never forget that the nation that now honors him is the same nation that took his life. The country that has now built him a monument is the same country that regarded him as a top threat to national security. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Once again, the words of Jesus are aptly precise. See, what has happened to King is the same thing that happened to Jesus. He's been sanitized by history. But during his lifetime, he was looked upon with great suspicion and ultimately executed as an enemy of the state. As Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Because when you start to challenge the foundations of the empire, understand that the empire will strike back. And Dr. King's ministry took direct aim at what he called the three great evils of American empire, racism, militarism, and economic exploitation. And America has not dealt too kindly with those who have tried to destroy its sacred cows. So understand that this morning, 
as we seek to pick up where Dr. King left off, we're not going to be talking about safe stuff. But then again, whenever we talk about walking the way of Jesus, whenever we proclaim allegiance to another kingdom underneath the nose of the empire, it's never safe. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning on this MLK Sunday of 2020 is the topic, study war no more. From Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and the words of Isaiah read like this. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have brought each one of us here into this place this morning. Lord, we come into this place from all different walks of life, different experiences. We come into this place this morning carrying different burdens. Some of us are riding on the heights of joy. Some of us come in in the depths of the valley of sorrow. But Lord, I pray that wherever we're at this morning, you would meet us in this place. Holy Spirit, would you move in and out of these rows of chairs and minister to our hearts? Would you open up our ears to be able to hear the word that you want to speak to us? Jesus, would you scatter the seed of your word across this place? And Lord, I pray that the seed of your word would land on hearts that are good soil, ready to receive your word, that it might take root and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, all to your glory. And Lord, I pray that I might not be a distraction to what you want to do today in this place, and so... Would you hide me behind your cross, Jesus, so that your name might be lifted high and exalted? And so, Lord, as I always ask, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust? It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. It's a moment that I'll never forget because it's a moment that caused me to ask the question that would serve as a determining factor in which direction I would choose to go with my life. It was during the first quarter of my second year studying at the University of Chicago when I began to take classes for my major, which was political science. And my focus in political science was international relations. And everyone focusing in international relations is required to take a class called Intro to IR Theory. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of international relations theory, but it's sufficient for you to know that there are several schools of thought when it comes to IR. And every one of the major schools of thought starts with the premise that the international system 
meaning the way that nations relate to and interact with one another, is what they call anarchic. When they say this, it just means that there is no overarching governing body to determine how nations act. In other words, nations will do whatever they want and feel is necessary to secure power for themselves, and no one can really tell them what to do or how to do it. As my professor was talking about this, he quoted one of the seminal thinkers of international relations theory, Kenneth Waltz, who says in his book, Man, the State, and War, that wars occur because there is nothing to prevent them. He was making the point, as a matter of fact, that war is just the way that things are. When I heard this, I had what I can only call, this thing is killing me right now. <laughs> it's falling off. Hold on. Let me, let me take a second. Get it right. I think we're good. All right. You know, when he said this, I had what I can only call a, a holy moment of divine encounter. It was, as, it was as if Jesus was sitting next to me in my IR theory class. Because while in one ear I heard wars occur because there is nothing to prevent them, in the other ear I heard, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And I began to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be a peacemaker in the midst of a humanity at war with itself? And it started to dawn on me that God's response to a world that has resigned itself to war as the only way is to create what the Apostle Paul called a new humanity. It's to create a people who are able to see beyond the current state of affairs and declare with their lives that it doesn't have to be this way and that another way is possible. You know, some might call us naive dreamers. Idealists who are out of touch with reality. But I would suggest that where there is no dream, there is no future. Where there is no dream, things will always remain the way that they are. And for some, the status quo is what they would prefer because it suits their bank accounts and their bottom lines. But for those of us in whom God has placed the seeds of holy discontent, I want to encourage us this morning to keep on dreaming. See, us dreamers, we we find ourselves in good company. As we look at the text that anchors us for this morning in Isaiah chapter 2, we hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, who was called by God to declare God's dream to a people who had resigned themselves to the current state of affairs. In the ancient world, there was the same understanding then that there is now. That war is the only way. Sometimes when you step back and you look at the big picture of things, you realize that we haven't progressed as far as we think we have. It's just that the weapons of war and the methods of war have taken a different shape. We have put far more thought, energy, capital, and human resources into developing our weapons of war than we have into making strides in the area of peace. But see, when God calls Isaiah to prophesy, he tells Isaiah to let the people know that a day is coming 
when all the nations will learn the ways of God. And the defining characteristic of this coming day, according to Isaiah chapter 2, is that when God begins to move, the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This is a beautiful, poetic imagery. Isaiah is painting the picture of the weapons of war being transformed into instruments of peace. Plowshares and pruning hooks are farm tools. They are representative of the tools that are used to make life possible. When we hear about swords being beaten into plowshares, we get the picture of a blacksmith taking a sword and putting it into the fire. And he lets it heat up to the point where it becomes malleable enough to begin to be worked on. And once it's been in the fire for long enough, the blacksmith takes it out and he begins to pound it and and work it. And once it cools and it hardens, the blacksmith then puts it back into the fire so that it can keep being worked on. And this process continues and continues until that weapon is completely and utterly transformed into something entirely new. And see, whenever God would speak through the prophets, it was never just to give information about something that was going to happen one day in the future, but the word was always meant to transform the people in the present moment. Shane Claiborne says in his book, Beating Guns, which is a book inspired by Isaiah chapter 2, that the prophets knew that with a little holy fire, metal can be reshaped, and so can people. They knew weapons that kill can be transformed, and so can people who kill. The prophets of old were not so much fortune tellers as they were provocateurs of the imagination. They weren't trying to predict the future, they were trying to change the present. They invite us to dream of the world as it could be and not just accept the world as it is, and that takes faith. And so it was that as a modern day prophet propelled by the faith of the gospel and determined to provoke among us a new imagination that Dr. King stood up on April 4th, 1967 in the pulpit of Riverside Church right here in New York City to deliver what is now broadly understood as the most controversial speech of his career titled Beyond Vietnam, a call, a time to break silence. Up to this point, King had not spoken publicly about his opposition to the war. But it was after this speech that he started to lose significant support among white allies. From folks like President Lyndon Johnson to evangelical leaders like Billy Graham. As I said earlier, America does not take too kindly to those who try to destroy its sacred cows. And so it's no surprise that it was exactly one year to the day after King gave this speech on April 4th, 1968, that he was murdered by an assassin's bullet. King once said that he spoke out against the Vietnam War because he was determined to take the gospel seriously. He said these words in his Beyond Vietnam speech. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. 
Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro, to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? The opposition that King faced was not just because he began to express dissent to the war, but because he was seeking to unmask the American war machine. He began to understand that America is and has always been a nation fueled by war. As we stand here today, America has been at war for roughly 222 out of its 246 years or so of existence. America has never gone a full decade without war. And no president can said to have been a peacetime president. This just goes to show that who we are as a nation depends on war. Do you understand that just five years ago, the world's military spending, meaning all the nations of the world combined, was at $1.6 trillion. And the United States accounted for 37% of this $1.6 trillion. U.S. military expenditures are roughly the size of the next seven largest military budgets around the world combined. The United States is home to five of the ten, the world's ten largest defense contractors. And American companies account for 57% of total arms sales by the world's 100 largest defense contractors. In other words, our economy depends on war. There was an article written this week in Psychology Today called You Have Been Conditioned for War. In the article, the author says, even our economy points in the direction of militarism. While hundreds of billions of dollars are spent each year on war, enriching corporate coffers and comprising a major segment of the economy, enlistment in the military is increasingly becoming the only way for many young people to avoid a minimum wage job and to pay for a college education. See, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is why King said in his speech, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. King began to see that the racism and poverty he spoke so vehemently against were not disconnected from the militarism at the heart of American life. Understand that systems of oppression always work together and fuel each other. The racism that was alive and well on the home front was the same racism that allowed the government to bomb, as King said, little brown Vietnamese children with impunity. And King wasn't speaking these words against the war because he believed that there were easy solutions to the problem of war, and neither do I. But he spoke to, to prick the conscience and to stir the imagination of a country that could see no other way of being in the world but to be at war. 
I didn't choose to highlight King's Vietnam speech today just because. I didn't choose this speech at random out of a stack of King's speeches. I chose it because even today, we stand on the brink of yet another war. Things continue to escalate between the United States and Iran. Life has already been taken as a result of U.S. actions with the murder of Qasem Soleimani. A Ukrainian flight was shot down over Iran, resulting in 176 passengers losing their lives, and the world wonders if this was an Iranian attempt at retaliation. And my purpose today is not to say Iran good and the U.S. bad and Iran bad, U.S. good, but my purpose is to speak to us. The people of God who have been called by Jesus to be peacemakers in the midst of a world that sees war as the only way to encourage us to lift up our heads. The problem is not that war is the only way. The problem is that we as human beings created in the image of God have forgotten our true vocation. I hesitated to speak on this today because I wondered if if this will be at all relevant to us in the lives that we live from day to day. I wondered to myself, will this matter to us at all? Is this practical enough? But I realized that my hesitation to speak to this is actually part and parcel of the crisis that we're in. As I said earlier, the United States has been at war for over 90% of the years that it has existed. Yet none of us live with a a day-to-day awareness that we live in a country that is constantly at war. Unless you yourself have been at war. Or you have a loved one who is away at war. Or you have a loved one whose life has been taken away by war. And this is a fact that our country has celebrated But we must recognize that our distance from the everyday realities of war means that families on the other side of the conflicts that we're engaged in live with war as their day-to-day reality. Our distance from the bombs means their proximity to the bombs. This should not be celebrated. This is not something to celebrate. The Pax Americana, the Peace of America, says that we will keep the bombs off your doorsteps by keeping the bombs on their doorsteps. But this is not the way of the peaceable kingdom of God. I firmly believe that as the church in America, we need to have spiritual practices that remind us of our connectedness to our brothers and sisters on the other side of the bombs so that we will be moved to raise our voices for them as we would want them to raise their voices for us if the situation were flipped. My hope is not that the United States, or any nation for that matter, would suddenly become a maker of peace in the world. But my hope is that as the people of God, we would rise up and grab a hold of our call. My hope is that we would not just accept the status quo of war, but that we would have a gospel-sized imagination. My hope is that we would raise our voices as is necessary. 
My hope is that through our day-to-day actions and interactions, we would sow the seeds of peace in the field of the world. Dr. King said that those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. And I believe this is our call to be organizers and conspirators of shalom. But this is going to require a renewed imagination that is able to see beyond the current status quo. Now the prophet Isaiah spoke about a day when nation shall not lift up sword against nation. A day when the people shall not learn war anymore. See, in God's new world, our hands and our hearts will be trained in the way of peace. To enroll in in Jesus' school of discipleship is to take a master class in the way of peacemaking. And it's interesting that in this text, when it says, neither shall they learn war anymore, the word translated as learn can also be translated as accept. Neither shall they accept war anymore. See, in the kingdom of God, the way of war, the way of preserving myself at the expense of another, the way of calling down fire on the heads of my enemies is not accepted. Because the sovereign of this kingdom, our commander-in-chief, is not a warmonger, but he is a peacemaker. And those of us who live under the rule and reign of God, whose lives are meant to be signposts pointing to that which is to come, we are called to be people right now who don't just accept war as the way, but who firmly demonstrate and believe that another way is possible. There's an old Negro spiritual that dates back to before the time of the Civil War called Down by the Riverside that borrows from the words of Isaiah chapter 2. The lyrics of the song simply say, I'm going to lay down my burdens down by the riverside. I ain't going to study war no more. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside. I ain't going to study war no more. Now, before this became a protest song during Vietnam, it was originally written as a baptism song. Imagine your baptism being a protest. And the idea is that as someone comes down to the river to pass through the waters of baptism, part of what they leave back on the shore are the weapons of war and the ways of war. And so I can imagine someone coming up out of the waters of baptism and all those who are on the shore beginning to sing as they come up. I'm going to lay down my burdens down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, I'm going to lay down my burdens. Down by the riverside, study war no more. And I ain't going to study war no more. Study war no more. Study war no more. 
study war no more. Study war no more. Study war no more. See, this is the invitation to those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus. Those of us who have passed through the waters of baptism. It's the invitation to be transformed into instruments of peace. To no longer be those who can be co-opted by the empire to be used for the ways of war. But to, to be those who say a resounding no because we are allegiant to another king whose way is peace. It's an invitation to be transformed into instruments of peace who don't just sit around and, and wait for the, the someday when God will bring peace, but who participate with God right here, right now, in that work while it is still day. The prophet Isaiah says it this way after he paints the picture of the day when nations will lay down their swords. He says to the people, come, O house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it's the same invitation that is given to us and that I want to extend to you this morning. Come, Mosaic Church, and let's walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.